rode the 600. Cannon to right of them, cannon to shot and shale. Boldly they rode and well into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell rode the 600. Flashing all their sabers bare, flashing as they turned in air, sabering the gunners there, charging an army while all the world wondered. Plunged in the battery smoke, right through the line they broke. Cossack and Russian reeled from the saber stroke, shattered and sundered. Then they rode back, but not the 600. Cannon to right of them, cannon to left of them, cannon behind them, volleyed and thundered, stormed it with shot and shell. While horse and hero fell, they that had fought so well came through the jaws of death back from the mouth of hell. All that was left of them, left of 600. What can their glory, when can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble 600. Alfred Lord Tennyson, charge of the light brigade. He said, well, I thought we were in Nahum too. We are. That was war poetry, folks. That's war poetry of a sublime sort. What we have in Nahum chapter 2 is war poetry. What we are coming to this evening by way of a preparation of having considered in chapter 1 exactly what the occasion on the ba- for the battlefield is. What is it? May I just read a couple of verses at the beginning of the first chapter? The Oracle of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Well, <laughs> we think of the Lord as compassionate, as consoling, merciful, long-suffering. And it says so in the next verse. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. What are we to make of this description that we're about to see in Nahum chapter 2 and in chapter 3? For it is war poetry, a war, a battle. And the Lord is the one who comes mighty in battle against his adversaries. With that said, I'd like to read now the second chapter, and I'm going to make some comments as we go along. So please follow with me. I'm reading from the New American Standard. There are, if you look at, if you're reading the English Standard Version, it has some improvements here and there, but I do not have time to uh, linger on those. But I want you to feel, since we're already in the smoke of battle in the charge of the Light Brigade, now let's, let's get into the smoke of battle and the charge of God Almighty against his enemy. Who is his enemy? Mighty Assyria. No threat to us. No threat to us. There is only a kingdom on the pages of history book. But I can tell you, they ruled in the ancient world for over 270 years. They were powerful. They were ruthless. They were tyrannical. They conquered the then-known civilization in the Middle East, and ruthlessly so. Now let's listen to what the Lord says through the prophet Nahum, 
Prophets were men raised up by God to be his mouthpiece to speak. Most of the prophets speak to Israel. Most of them speak to Israel and Judah. Israel, the northern tribes, Judah, the southern two tribes. Most of the prophets engage in calling the people of God, the covenant people, to their covenant responsibilities. But Nahum is different. In some ways, he's like Jonah. Jonah and Nahum share some uh, common ground. You remember Jonah was reluctant to go to Nineveh and preach. He wanted God to nuke him, take him off the map, eliminate them as an adversary and a threat to Israel. Why should he go there? Who knows? They may repent and live on. It was unacceptable to Jonah. But, well, that story as it goes, Jonah did go and Nineveh did repent. But, you know, it was only less than 100 years. Do we find a real change? For a while, there was a moratorium. There was some dormancy, as it were, in Assyria's aggression against other nations. Then they come back. They come back and go to their old ways. Nahum shows up on the scene, maybe during the revival of during Josiah's time in 622 B.C. That's when the book of the law was discovered in the temple. And there was a revival in Israel. And maybe at this time, Nahum comes forward and speaks as to what would happen in just a few decades, what would happen to Assyria. Let's read, follow along. The one who scatters has come against you, and that would be God Almighty. Man the fortress, watch the road. Bit of sarcasm here. (laughs) It's telling them to get ready. God's coming against you. What in the world could you do to adequately protect yourself if God is coming against you? That's the significance of the sarcasm. Man the ramparts, really. Watch the road. Strengthen your back. Summon all your strength. Well, the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, the majesty of Jacob. Now we're left at this point with some kind of a question like when? When? I wish to comment on this at a little more length at the conclusion tonight because, you know, Assyria fits into Bible prophecy in an interest, most interesting way. And if you would look in your maps, I'm not sure if a map got put in tonight. Is it in the sequence? I didn't get it back. Well, you can go to the back of your Bible, and if you have a Bible that has maps in it, you can, and if you've watched news and you look in Iraq, just look up in the northern portions of Iraq and also over into Syria and to some extent up into the southern borders of Turkey and over to Iran, and you would have the swath of territory that ancient Assyria ruled over, though they're, uh, they ruled over other territories as well, as well as far down as into Egypt. But that's the land area that uh, of which we speak. But the splendor of Jacob is in view here. And there is something, something that our, our interest is, curiosity is tweaked here a bit because how is this going to aid Jacob or Israel? What good would this do for them? Hold on to that.
even though the de- even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches, that would be Israel. The branches would be referring to the various clans and families and members of the southern kingdom. The shields of his mighty men are colored red. Now here is this description of judgment in some vivid detail. And the fact that they are colored red, some think that this is describing the shields of the Syrian warriors as being surfaced. uh, The cover on the shields was copper. Others say that they smeared their shields with blood. Others say that it was the robes of the warriors that were soaked in blood or smeared with blood is kind of an intimidating factor. You know, that does play into warfare psychologically. So the more fierce you can appear, the more, well, it may give you an edge. And they certainly had it. The warriors are dressed in scarlet. The chariots are enveloped in flashing steel when he is prepared to march. And the cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly in the streets. They rush wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash or dart like to and fro, like lightning flashes. What he's describing is that as as Nabopolassar and Syaxares, the coalition of the Babylonian army and, and the uh, Persian army, that they came together in a united front to attack Assyria in 612 B.C. And when they did so, they entered into the city by breaching the outer walls. I can stop and just give you a brief description because the city was built by the Tigris River and the, actually the Kosar River would have run through the city. What a nice water source. And so in that arrangement, there would be these floodgates that when the Kosar River would flood, it could be controlled so that you could release only the water that the city would have needed and it would not have undermined the walls and the infrastructure of the city. Well, it didn't take a whole lot of genius to figure out, well, if we can somehow compromise these floodgates and if they can be released and the waters come rushing in, then you're going to wash away or create beds, dry beds through which you can march into the city. You could break down the wall because the walls were made of uh, brick and not stone and wood. And so what would happen is an easy entrance into the city. So as the city was entered, the walls, the outer defenses were brought down. Then the Assyrians who had walled themselves up and in the ramparts and on the towers, it's estimated that there were maybe 1,500 towers. Only an ancient historian has referenced this, so we don't have any way to uh, confirm it but they were like 200 feet high and 1,500 towers. Maybe an exaggeration, but it was a formidable uh, uh, city and defense system. So the Assyrians, as seeing the threat moving into their city, there would have been major panic, and there would have been these chariots just running through the the broadways and uh, going through the city and... You'll see the description as it's developed further. 
So it's describing the sun gleaming off of these sieve-like spokes on the wheels of these Assyrian chariots, and it's utter pandemonium. By the way, this is not a prophecy of the automobile in the 20th century. Um, I was amused as a teenager when going to downtown Atlanta. Uh, I remember seeing this. You remember, Ron, where you used to get off the bus there at Riches and then, you know, you just walk on into the city. But there was this car that would ride through the city, and on the side of this automobile was the verse, uh, Nahum, in chapter uh, 2, in verse uh, uh, 4. And this was presented as prophecy is being fulfilled. Get ready. The Lord is coming. Quoting this as if it were a prediction of the automobile. I'm sorry to spoil your your uh, fantasies about that kind of prophecy. Not true. Not true. And so, he remembers his nobles. They stumble in their march. They hurry to her wall. To the towers. To the towers. You can hear the voices, the screams. And the mandalet is set up. Or the siege tower. Any of you have any interest at all in ancient sieges and warfare, you maybe you've seen it in a movie where you would build this two or three story moving tower, as it were, into which the soldiers would go and in, in being pushed in on wheels, it would come right up to the wall. And of course, you're battering rams, you're breaking the wall in but you were protecting your infantry from whatever's coming down from up top, spears and arrows and hot tar and whatever else, rocks. And so you could get your, you could get your army up and close. That's what this mandalet is. The gates of the rivers are open. There it is, the floodgates to control it all. And so the armies will come pouring in like a flood, but not of water, but of men who have nothing but vengeance. And by the way, there was plenty of built-up revenge and among the, uh, the Persians and among the Babylonians because Assyria for 270 years had just been ruthless in their, in their warfare techniques and tactics and just in torture and beheadings. And so you can imagine after a while the surrounding civilizations say, this is it. Now we have, we have our day. And they took no prisoners. And so the palace is dissolved. And it is fixed. She is stripped. She is carried away. And her handmaids are moaning like the sound of doves. Beating on their breast. What this is describing is the she, is Ishtar, which is the goddess, the goddess of Assyria, and so much for women's lib in Assyria, she didn't help them, and the handmaids, is a euphemistically expressing the temple prostitutes, are, of course, you can imagine what their future would be like when these angry, vengeful, lust-filled uh, soldiers begin to pour into the city. Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they're fleeing. Stop, stop. You can see, <clears throat> you can see the captains, the company commanders. Halt, halt. 
you know, trying to reduce the panic by getting the fighting men to come to their senses. Don't retreat. Don't run. Come, stand. Get in line. You must have discipline, but it's all has evaporated. But no one turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind of desirable object. Oh, Syria had plundered so many palaces, so many kingdoms, so many places. You can only imagine the storage of gold and silver and jewels. And they were eager to get their hands on it. She is emptied. Yes, she is desolate and waste. Hearts are melting and knees are knocking. Also, anguish is in the whole body and all their faces are grown pale. What this is actually is in verses 10 through 12 is what is called a taunt song. That's like, nah, 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 nah. Oh, my. Could I insert this? Yes, I will. I heard that there was a child that was deeply offended at the Panthers um, game. It was a week ago. They had come all the way from the West Coast, and this little child was dressed in Panther regalia, and the, the child was just crushed emotionally. And the parents were upset because this child, it was a little boy, he heard people booing, booing the Seahawks. And it was just, oh, this was terrible. They booed, and you know, that, that's beyond a microaggression. <laughs> These poor little ones. <clears throat> All right, that's a throwaway if, it wants, if, if so, but my, what have we come to? <clears throat> Where is the den of the lions? Now, you must, the taunt continues here. Um, the, I think he's describing here the members of the Assyrian royal house, that is, the royalty, the princes and the princesses. And Assyria's um, mascot or beast of identity was the lion. You'll see this often in portrayals of great Assyrian kings fighting, going out in chariots with the bow pulled back and killing lions. And lions were used to portray the might and strength and the power, so, as you see, of mighty Assyria. And feeding, the feeding place of the young lions were the lion, lioness, and the lion's cub, prowled with nothing to disturb them. The lion tore enough for his cubs. Kill. I have a note here to take you to Will Durant's uh, description of one of the destructive uh, forays of the Assyrians. It's just a lot of blood and stuff. Uh, if you want any of that, you can go home and watch NFL football afterward tonight, so I'll just, I won't go into any more of that. But uh, it, it was awful, the brutality. Killed enough for his lionesses and filled his lairs with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you. Who's saying this? The Lord God Almighty is saying this. That ought to make you shiver. I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your soldiers. I will cut off your prey from the land. And no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. The messengers would have been those who, under in better days, in victorious days, 
would have gone about declaring the greatest and latest victory that Assyria has won over the mighty whoever. Well, so it's all shut down now. It's all shut down. And now there's nothing but grief and death. That's some more poetry, folks. And let's proceed. And let's uh, consider a couple of things. I just want to make two statements by way of an introduction. I'll be brief. One is this. That God holds the nations of this world accountable to him. I'm trying to grab, uh, take up what chapter 1 did. And I think I'm trying to express it in it. All the nations are accountable to God because of his inherent righteousness and justice. He established righteous, a righteous moral order and leaves all men without excuse. And nations, nations who are so arrogant as to attempt to push back and attack God, there is a payday. And the nations of the world, they are given evidence of their moral accountability. How? God has revealed himself in history. He has what has come to those who've defied the Lord. I'll give you examples a little later on. So the nations of the world are given an adequate time to respond to God's grace. We've been given, what do we have, 231 years, something like that, from 1776 to um, 2016. We're a relatively baby nation compared to some of the ancient, certainly Rome. But time, time to respond to him. I think we have on our coinage in God we trust. Oh, do we? Do we? God holds us to it. Secondly, next, we're confronted with the fury of God's judgment on a wicked nation. That's simply the header for what this chapter is all about. And so, Assyria, she was a godless, idolatrous city full of violence, lust, greed, And it's now is maxed out. It's full and running over. God has given them adequate time. You know, it reminds me of the book of Amos. If you want to go out to other parts of the Old Testament for this same motif, the same theme. When you have in the first chapter of Amos where God singles out through that prophet various nations around Israel for three transgressions and yet for four. That's the language of poetry saying the cup is full and running over. You have had time, and now you are going to be judged. So God is long-suffering. And I'm, well, too many, this is a study all stands on its own two legs, this whole study of war and nations. I I am reminded of Zechariah in chapter 1. You remember when you start out with those, what is it, seven to eight visions in those first chapters of Zechariah. And the, the first vision is a picture of horses, going out and simply doing reconnaissance. And what are they doing? These are representing angels that the Lord has dispatched to go out and to recon the nations around Israel to see what their status is as a way of communicating, not that the Lord needs information, but it's a way to impress upon those who hear the word of the Lord that he is in full control of what's going on in the nations and he sees what they're doing. And it's also especially interesting in that place in Zechariah that the center of the concern of God at that point was Israel. So the nations are evaluated in what they want to do and what they have done to Israel. I'll give you a little um, uh, sidebar on this, that yes, Israel is in judicial blindness and is under the chastening hand of God in this dispensation. 
but he's still protecting Israel. He will not allow Israel to be destroyed. And I can tell you, Israel is in the crosshairs of a lot of the demonic controlled nations that surround Israel that are just licking their chops for the chance to eliminate Israel and destroy the covenant plan of God for the nation of Israel. All right, let's come to the statement. This is the way I'm summarizing verses 1 to 13, and then I'm going to attach to it some uh, subordinate statements. One, it is this, or two, actually, if you take chapter 1. God may execute his judgment on nations by means of more powerful nations. By means of more powerful nations. God may use nations that are idolatrous and wicked to punish other nations. God is not limited to raising up, having to raise up a righteous nation to punish a wicked nation. He used the Babylonians and the Persians who were idolatrous peoples. They were not out on some kind of, uh, this This was not a pro-life co-belligerency here <laughs> that we need to uphold God's moral law and let's go to war. This was not a crusade for God. So God raised up the Babylonians and the Medes to attack Nineveh. And the defenses, the skills, the reputation, the willpower of, willpower of a nation are of no help. You know, it's a... It's a more of passing interest to notice the ways in which God comes against nations that have been quite formidable in history. That is, they've had their... Uh, let me give you a list. I'm just scanning the list. Old Testament. Edom, the book of Obadiah. Edom, so proud of her apparently impregnable place. I've been there. Seen what, how you wonder. How can anybody get in this place? That's what they thought. <laughs> Israel, her trust in her alliances and alliances and treaties. She thought that if she could make an alliance down here with Egypt, make one up here with Syria or Assyria or Babylon, she was always trying to play some kind of a uh, diplomatic chess game to create defense and protection. Didn't work. Babylon, her trust in wealth and power. Tyre, her trust in her location as she was off there into the sea in the eastern end of the the Mediterranean, and a a great sea power. It didn't help. The Romans and their vaunted war machine. No, the world has not seen the likes of the war machinery. Just watch the first, um, maybe if you can bear it, the first 20 minutes of the gladiator, and you get a little, some vivid pictures of the Roman war machine. The French and their brilliant general, Napoleon. The Germans and their military strength and brilliant scientists. Think of it, probably the most advanced civilization, certainly up to that time, with minds that were just incredibly brilliant with what they were able to devise to do what? To destroy other people. I'm speaking of Germany, pre-World War II and into World War II. What What did God do them? Brought them down into rubble. The Soviet Union and its empire. Many of us lived through that period of time. We thought, how would the great Iron Curtain ever come down? And oh, it did with a great thud, 1989, 1990. Iraq and its pretensions of power and the evil represented there. 
And we must add to the list, the United States and its advanced technology. We think that because we can do mighty things in battle, and we can, it's amazing the kinds of weapons that we always seem to come up with, we in Israel, weapons that uh, always are ahead of the weapons that everyone else has. And I'm thankful for that, but I will tell you, we'd better not be putting all of our confidence in stock in our great military might. The Lord can bring it down so easily. So, let me move along here. The, the victory of one nation over another in warfare and world dominance does not validate its morals, values, or religious systems. What I'm saying is this. God used Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and he used Cyrus and Cyaxares and the Persians. He used them, but these nations, they were doing it to show the supremacy of their own gods. But God sovereignly controlled the circumstances. He was using it for his purposes. And the assumption, of course, this assumption placed Israel in a difficult situation. What did it take for Israel in this movement? And she was the mouse and the cats were playing with her quite frequently, Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, is that it required solid faith not to be demoralized when you endured the shame of being turned over to an idolatrous people. You imagine the shame? You read Jeremiah. Read Lamentations. You know how he felt? The prophet of God felt? Looks Israel, Israel being marched out as Jeremiah was there in that grotto looking as Israel marched by, marched off to their life in Babylon. An idolatrous people. It's as if God said, you want to play footsie with idolatry. You want to compromise with Canaanite idols and uh, gods and goddesses. I'm going to give you a full dose of your own medicine then. Here's what it's like to live under their uh, their dominance and rule. And I will tell you, it took some strong faith to work through that. Just read Habakkuk. He struggled with it. He said, he said Lord, how can you do this? Habakkuk is quite an instruction on for God's people, when things happen, they just seem to be so, they seem to be so theologically illogical as the way we may think, but they aren't. But how could a good God do this? How could we, he put his people into this. You know, we could stretch this out. I can't take time with this, but why would God bring a stock market down? Why would God bring the wealth of a nation down to its knees when many Christian people have Access to the market system and to treasure, to what? To give, to serve, to do benevolent things, humanitarian projects. Why would he do that? He can. We mustn't place our confidence in the fact that we're wealthy and God can't do without us. (laughs) Fourth, nations, or excuse me, the destruction of Israel's nemesis, Nineveh, became the occasion for the promise of a better day for Israel. That's in verse 2. That's the splendor. What it means is this, I think. If you want to go back and circle that word splendor, it's used twice in verse 2. For the word majesty as it's translated in the ESV. That the destruction of Nineveh leads the way for the restoration of Israel and Judah. One writer put it this way. The excellence or majesty of Israel will be restored. This was will not be fully realized till Israel is in the land in the millennial kingdom, which the Messiah will establish. Now, pull back the curtain a little bit. 
because I want to get to that quickly as to how Assyria and Israel fit into end-time events. All right? Nations will be judged by a slow decline or destroyed suddenly. You know, God has different ways of bringing nations down. Now, obviously, it was, it was drastic. It was uh, sudden, 612 B.C., that Nineveh came down. It was an invading army. But, you know, there were a lot of other things that were going on in Nineveh, and it frequently happens this way in history, that nations, um, it's more complex than the way it would appear on the surface. What brings a nation down? Well, you say, well, another superior fighting force, another nation comes and destroys it. But, you know, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Nations go through a process of internal decay and destruction. For example, there is, uh, if you've ever read Gibbon's book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, and or The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and there are these classic five descriptive terms used to show how Rome eventually was easily sacked by the Vandals, the Goths, the Visigoths, and how she was destroyed in the in the fourth and fifth centuries uh, A.D. And I, don't, I can't chase these, but you you find the following: these are standard observations that come out of Gibbon's book. The decline in morals and values, crimes of violence increased, wasted money, gladiatorial combats. Number two, political corruption. Number three, agricultural decline, because the value of money was decreased. The farms were not worth working. More people came to the cities. There were fewer people in what was necessary to keep them living in the working through the, the farm, you know, breadbasket and uh, grain. Inflation, unemployment, military spending. Uh, Rome had to continue to invest because they had a fewer who were willing to or wanting to go into the military and to fight. And they had to invest in hiring mercenaries and those from outside Rome to do their fighting for them, not a good arrangement. So I'm just saying that they're different. When a nation comes to the point, it's like a tree. I have a tree in my backyard. It's a pine tree. And it's still standing. And I'm waiting, though, for something to come along like a really good wind to get to it. I've looked at it. I'm estimating that it can't get my house. But I'm going to tell you, it doesn't take uh, a real arborist to look at that and say, it's just a matter of time, because that tree is rotting. And all it would take would be the right wind, the right day, the right time, and it comes down. This is the way God works this way to bring nations down. For what does he do? He turns us over to a banquet of consequences. God says, in so many words, if you choose to war against me and my moral law, natural law even, you're going to pay a price. Now, I intend to do more of that next week when God judges a nation in the future of the United States of America. I'm going to get real specific about the USA. So let's uh, let's go on from here. So um, let me add this, that God's judgment on the nations demonstrates his power 
demonstrates his superiority over the idols of the nations. And adequate biblical testimony is available to is evident in the exodus of Israel from Egypt. The gods of the Egyptians were proven to be frauds. No, not frogs, frauds, though the frogs did get it, didn't they? The miracles of judgment on the Egyptians this was a powerful witness to the greatness of Israel's God. And what did Israel do with that? She squandered that, that, that faith capital, if you will. She saw God work, bringing back the mighty the waters of the Red Sea. And all of those judgments that fell upon Egypt. And what does Israel do? She begins to immediately begin to complain and to gripe and to challenge authority. And God says, I've had it with you. And then he disciplines them, chastens them, and an entire generation. They have a cemetery to that nation in the desert. And a new generation has to come up. So God is sovereign over the rise and fall of nations. God's judgment then on the nations demonstrates his superiority. I will have to come to my summary now. Let's finish up. You may have some questions that so I'm pedaling fast to get to that. Here's my summary. The prophecies of Nineveh's fall were fulfilled in accurate detail. Fulfilled in in vivid I'm going a little fast for you, Luke. We'll, I know what you, you're trying to... I'm, I'm, I'm making you push it, but... Uh, okay, there we are. The prophecies of Nineveh's fall were fulfilled in accurate detail. I can point out two or three of these to you if you'd like to mark them in your Bible. For example, now mind you, this was a prophecy by Nahum at least two, three decades before the fall of Assyria. Nineveh would be destroyed by a flood. Chapter 1, verse 8. Chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. And she was. The river, the floodgates. Nineveh would be destroyed by fire. 110, 2.13. Plundering and pillaging would accompany the overthrow of the city. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. When Nineveh would be captured, its people would try to escape. Chapter 2, verse 6. What do fulfilled prophecies tell us? Carried out to the letter, they tell us that God is a promise-keeping God. Now, I know that cuts, that cuts in a painful way, but it cuts also in a hopeful way. God keeps his word. And he can be trusted. Let me ask you this. Are you trusting him? Come on now, I mean, are you really trusting him in your heart of hearts? When you look out on the problems that you're dealing with, maybe the, the battles within that you fight, the struggles, who knows? We're all sitting in a pool of tears of some kind tonight. Am I trusting God? Am I really? Am I counting on him? Is my confidence in him? You know, if there is, one test of this, is joy bubbling up in your heart? You know, if you're living kind of crankily, and you're just, uh, you know, complaining, and you got it in for people, and bitterness is beginning to seep into your soul, that's, those are not good signs. Well, let's go on. Fulfill prophecies of God's judgment against his enemies are an affirmation that all of God's enemies will be judged. What he does in time, he will do eventually to all the, you know what we have on that? Daniel 
in chapter 2 and Revelation 11 in verse 15. You know, the book of Revelation gives two chapters, 17 and 18, to the fall of Babylon, which is a picture of that great, mighty world civilization that will exist. It's going to be encompassing all of the arrogance, the godlessness, and the worship of wealth and power, and the human spirit. All of that's going to come down. Two chapters in the last book of the Bible are given to that. The fulfilled prophecy of God's judgment against Assyria lifts our eyes to the place of Assyria and the second coming of Christ. Let me explain what I mean. First of all, according to Isaiah 19, 23 through 25, I can't recall if I put that up, um, did I? Um, that according to Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. Here, you need to look at it. Let's go there. I've been moving along well enough to allow us to do that. I want you to see this in Isaiah 19. And here is a glimpse of the future with regard to Israel. Uh, This ought to really get your imagination going a bit. Uh, Isaiah chapter 19 and and verse 23. I'll just, I don't have time to go into the, what context. The context is the coming kingdom. And in that day is the code language here in verse 23. In that day. And what he's doing is that peace is going to be established on the earth one day. The kingdom, the millennial kingdom, the rule of the Messiah on this earth. And he says in that day there will be a highway. From Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt. And the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Whoa! Wait a minute. Think about this. Do you know where this is? This is smack dab in the middle of the what the 1040 window. And who is ruling that part of the world? And billions of people. Islam. What does this say? I should remind, I'll speak with Ed about this in this class. This is a marvelous class as he's taking us through the study of Islam in Sunday school. And uh, this is a reminder that I, I, I just will give you a brush by, a run by on this. You know, in the tribulation, when the Antichrist breaks his covenant with Israel in the middle of Daniel's 70th week, that all hell's going to break loose on this earth. And part of that is that there's going to be a movement of the king of the north and the kings of the east are also going to come out as a part of the Armageddon campaign. And we also have what has been called, I I can't recall if Hal Lindsey used this language or not, but he can over-sensationalize some things, but some things, a lot of things he got right, like Great Planet Earth. And that is the movement of a pan-Arabic bloc from the south coming in against Israel. Nations coming in to destroy Israel. This is where the king of the West, the king of the Antichrist, with his, with his armies come in to try to come to some prearranged agreement to fight, and it's all about ruling the world. And so what happens is that this pan-Arabic bloc, Islamic nations, will partner with Russia and eventually with China even, For there is this unified bloodlust that they all have. And you know what it is? 
the destruction of Israel. Have you ever stopped thinking, why is it that anti-Semitism is just such, it's so, it's a historical given. Everywhere. Can you think of any other people that have been hated and people who, the nations have wanted to destroy them more than little Israel? And you look at how it, where it sits and what little land area it has. I'll leave that to your fertile theological imagination. But here, in that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So we have all these Muslim lands. Islam, oh, Islam, to submit. And guess what happens? Islam ends up having to submit and will submit to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There will be a work of God the Spirit that will be extraordinary and there will be believers in these former Islamic nations, Assyria, Iraq, and environs, and Egypt, and they are all Israel and all these Egypt, Israel, and Iraq will be worshiping the Lord together. Think of that, converted Israel and the others. All right, I wanted you to see that, and that I think that what uh, we have in Nahum is pulling back the curtain and seeing this splendor that will exist, this majesty. Jews will come from Assyria to Israel in the kingdom. This is also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13, as well as Zechariah 10 and verse 10. And Assyria... I like, I have a quote here. This is from John Walvoord. I can't remember what source it was, uh, his book on the nations. Walvoord wrote a lot of good things in eschatology. And this is a quote from John Walvoord, who said, former president of Dallas Seminary, he's now with the Lord. Assyria, the great nation of the past, which antedated the Babylonian Empire and successive dominions of the Gentiles, will have its echo in the prophetic future and its place in the divine program of the millennial kingdom. So it will. So therefore the fulfilled prophecy of Nineveh's scattering stands in contrast to Israel's gathering and restoration. And that's what's going on in the background of, of, of Nahum. God is a plan. This, this, Nahum was written to encourage Israel. I know you, we here at Baraka in 2016, we're encouraged by this future plan. But don't forget that remnant people in Israel when they heard this prophecy, that gave them, that steeled them, encouraged them. Yes, yes, they couldn't see a whole lot that looked good, but they had God's word on it, and it kept them going on and trusting God, trusting Him. And so therefore, ethnic Israel, yes, she has a future. He's not through with Israel. She's going to one day turn to the Lord. All Israel will be saved, according to Romans in chapter 11, verse 26. There's coming a grand and glorious day 